0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see many of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, thank you. Uh, as a church plant, it's always awesome to, to see new faces. So, thank you. If you are curious, the bathrooms are right back there, um, and there is food in the back. That is for you before, after. Please dig into that. That's not like set aside for a special group of people. Afterward, please just eat it. So, um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Rob, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, hopefully that doesn't do that too much. That'd be kind of awkward. Um, But in 1962, there was an English rock band formed. Okay, And it was formed in London, England. English rock band makes sense, London, England. Um, And diverging from the typical pop rock of the early 1960s, the band pioneered the gritty, heavier driven sound that came to define hard rock. And they quickly gained in popularity. And um, by 1968, they were known as the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And this band, if you have any guesses, is the Rolling Stones. Anybody have that? Or are they thinking that? I feel like most people probably thought the Beatles. Um, It's the Stones. So the Rolling Stones, um, 1968, known as the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And in '65 they released a song that many of you may have already heard of called Satisfaction. And I will um, spare you me singing it, but I will give you the chorus um, after I read this quote. So this quote by the Rolling Stone magazine said that this song, Satisfaction, was um, known to be their first number one hit and instantly catapulted them to a whole new level of fame and success. In many ways, it's the most important song of their career. This band that is the most popular rock and roll band in the world. So the chorus, for those of you who don't know, uh, says, I can't get no. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. That's what I say. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. So this song, this most important song of the greatest rock and roll band in the world clearly struck a chord, no pun intended, struck a chord with millions around the world. This song catapulted them to their fame. That was in 65, and then by 68, they're the greatest rock and roll band in the world. So why does a song titled Satisfaction, where it's not saying I'm so satisfied, I'm so satisfied, it's saying, I can't get no satisfaction. Why does a song like that, aside from a catchy melody, why does that resonate with so many people worldwide? Why is it so difficult for us to be truly satisfied? I, uh, my family and I, we were at a, our church is part of a um, network of churches called Harbor Network, and they had a, um, Lead Pastors and Wives Retreat last week. And so we were attending that. And while we we're there, my wife and I, we, we met another couple who's from Cleveland. And their kids are further along than ours. And they have like four kids or something like that. And so we're like, OK, which stage is the best stage? Because it seems like our three-year-old is in a really difficult stage, <laughs> as much as we love her. And our nine-month-old is just, on repeat when it comes to eating. Like, we just cannot keep enough food in the house. So like, which stage gets easier? And, and their response was, um, every stage is the best stage. Which, I mean, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, OK, that's cheesy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that. But, but there's a little bit of truth to it, in that we'll never truly be satisfied. Whatever stage we're in, we're always looking to the next thing. And they said, whatever stage we're in, there's. Joys and there's challenges, um, and so they tried to encourage us with that, and for the most part, it was encouraging. Um, but I would submit to you this morning, that as we march through this text, that we will see that because of Jesus's compassion, we can live fully satisfied. Because of Jesus's compassion, we can live fully satisfied. So, if if what I preach today is relatively clear. we'll pray that that is the case. And Lord willing, we'll be able to enjoy the kind of satisfaction that we were designed to enjoy. We will be able to show others where true satisfaction is. And we'll be able to diagnose some of the reasons why we may not feel satisfied. So... Lord willing, those are some things that we'll be able to take away from this passage. So if you're joining us this morning or if you've been with us since December when we first started the series of Mark and first started gathering in this room, um, we've been going through the book of Mark, passage by passage. And the consistent theme that we keep putting before you is that it is God restoring his wayward people. We see different instances of that. We see different facets of that. But it's ultimately big picture, God restoring his wayward people people. And now we come to this passage in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, and some of you who were here just a few weeks ago probably heard some similar themes. It sounds very similar to chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. There's a lot of similarities there, so much so that some commentators believe it is the the same thing being told from a different perspective. Now, for several reasons, um, most commentators say that's not the case, but some, some would put that before you and say that we actually think this is the same story, just told from a different angle. A couple reasons why um, I don't hold to that position, at least, is because in, in this passage, the crowd that Jesus is feeding, it's a Gentile crowd, whereas in Mark 6, it was a Jewish crowd. And then in addition to that, Mark 6 was 5,000 men, not including women and children. So if you add women and children, you're looking at twelve to 15,000. People in this passage is 4,000 people total. So, even though both are big masses, one is noticeably larger than the other one. And there's other reasons that we could get into and that you could take a deep dive. Um, but for at least those reasons, we, we believe this is a separate event, two different events taking place. Now, starting in chapter eight, we're going to start to see more of this re- repetition. Okay. So, for, or chapter six and seven we see a series of about six different events. And in chapter eight, we see another series of what seem to be very similar events. So we see a feeding of a multitude. We see Jesus and his disciples crossing the lake. We see a dispute with the Pharisees, a discussion about bread, a healing take place, and then a confession of faith. We see these things being rehashed. And commentators have said that it's essentially to emphasize... The disciples' lack of understanding. Some commentators say the disciples' dullness, kind of a harsh way of, of putting it. But the disciples, we, we, we're privileged to be able to have the story right here. And we can see the different things that are going on. The disciples are living this in real time. And so they are slower to embrace some of these things because they just don't know the end of the story like we do. So we live in a, in a privileged time. But the repetition here, as John Mark, the author of this book, as he goes through it, uh, most would say that it's because he's emphasizing the disciples lack of understanding. And we'll see that um, next week or the week after as Jesus brings up things. And he says things like, do you not yet understand? He's like, are you serious? Do you really not yet get it? So we'll, we'll see that in the weeks to come. But today, as you'll see in your bulletins, we've got three points for this passage. Um, The compassion Jesus feels the meal Jesus provides and the gospel of Jesus extends. The compassion Jesus feels, the meal Jesus provides, and the gospel Jesus extends. So let me pray for our time, and then we can begin going through each of those. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather, to encourage one another in the gospel. You tell us not to neglect gathering together because we are creatures who so quickly forget. We ask that as we look at at your word that you would remind us. We need reminding. We pray for other churches in the area that are reminding one another of the gospel and that are proclaiming the gospel to the city that they are in. Lord, we think specifically of Cornerstone here in Westerville. Thank you for the way they proclaim the gospel. We pray that you would continue to bless them insofar as they continue to proclaim the gospel. Same thing with Redemption Hill Church in Galloway well as Covenant Community Church in Newark, Grace Bible Church in Canal Winchester, and Summit Baptist Church in Pataskala, our sending church. Lord, we are grateful for partners in the gospel near and far that are proclaiming the gospel, seeking to live faithfully. Lord, we ask that we would be able to join in with that this morning. We recognize that we are not the only ones who have been entrusted with this gospel, and so we pray that all of your people around the world would be faithful to proclaim it and be faithful to live in light of it. God, we pray for our city. Think specifically of our first responders. Lord, we're grateful for the police that you've given us. We pray for their safety as they seek to protect and serve. Think of Police Chief Charles Chandler. Lord, give him wisdom on how to lead the police department. Think of the fire department and fire chief, Brian Miller. God, we ask for wisdom and we ask for your blessing on our first responders, those who go in and are the first ones to serve us in our greatest times of physical need. Pray for our hospital workers, Lord, this past year has been wildly difficult with COVID. We ask that you would give them some reprieve. And now, Lord, as we go through this passage, help us. We need to be reminded anew of the gospel. Help us magnify Christ. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We need it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so in your bulletin, there's the three points. And the first one that we see is the compassion that Jesus feels. Let me read verses one through three again. In those days, there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. And some of them have come a long distance. So right there in that first verse, we see the first three words in those days. That references back to the previous chapter, verses 24 and 31, where Jesus and his disciples are in the region of Tyre and Sidon and the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. So the, the point being made here, as we kind of already alluded to earlier, the introduction is that jesus is talking to a crowd of gentiles he's in a gentile region and he is now addressing gentiles those who are far from god the nation of israel god's chosen people they've been promised a messiah and jesus has been making the claim that he is in fact that messiah and the previous passages that we looked at he said is it not right for me to, is it right for me to give what's for the children to the dogs, referring the children are Israelites, the dogs are Gentiles, and we see him consistently actually reaching out to the Gentiles. So he prioritizes that, hey, the people of Israel are my priority, but this gospel is going to be made complete by reaching Gentiles as well, and we'll unpack that more as we go. The crowds... Are gathering again and so there is a popularity of Jesus that is not just with the Israelite people the Israelite Jewish people they, they recognize this guy whether he actually is who he says he is or not he's been doing a lot of things that seem fairly impressive and he's got our attention however the Gentiles now are also starting to recognize who Jesus is so now another crowd is gathering and it's gathering again and as the crowd gathers as people come around Jesus, it's interesting to note what his response is. He inif- immediately gathers his disciples. He says, you're my, you're my followers, you're my people, I've called you to myself. And he calls his disciples in. And Mark, the author of this book, tends to use that as a cue that something is about to happen. Writers have certain styles and ways in which they write. Mark, his style tends to be that if Jesus is calling disciples to himself, it should be a little red flag that something's about to happen. And it does. Now, in chapter 6, the similar account where Jesus is feeding the 5,000, he notices that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. And the first thing that he does before he even gives them bread is he teaches them the Bible notices that they're like sheep without a shepherd. So he sits down and he teaches them. And we see Jesus teaching here. However, Jesus, as great of a teacher as he is, he also acts. And so he then shows compassion on the crowd. We read this in verses 2 and 3, which we just read. Now, this compassion that Jesus has, we're not fully getting what Jesus is feeling. Now, before I even get into that, B.B. Warfield, theologian, said compassion is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus' heart towards you is this morning, whether you're killing it as a Christian or whether you feel far from him, you want to know what his heart is towards you? It's compassionate. Compassion is the attribute that is most frequently attributed to Jesus, but he has compassion because of their need. It would seem strange to have compassion if they had absolutely no need. So his compassion is rooted in the fact that they are a needy people. And this compassion, as I said, we're not totally grasping it. That word in the Greek is actually, um, if you were to transliterate it, it is entrails or guts. And so this feeling that Jesus has is a gut-wrenching feeling feeling toward this needy people. It moves him. He feels it so deeply that be, if we were to translate it exactly, it would be like he has a gut-wrenching sympathy, a gut-wrenching empathy for this people. And so when he says, I have compassion for them, he's saying, I feel, I don't just feel bad, but it is wrecking me. I, I so, so want these people, their needs to be met. And so Jesus with this compassion, he's shown it before. Mark 6, the passage that we keep referencing back to, also says that I have compassion on these people. And so there's a symmetry happening. I have compassion on these people. I'm going to meet their needs physically and spiritually. I have compassion on these people. I'm going to meet their needs physically and spiritually. We see a symmetry. Now, the disciples, they respond in a way that seems like they're completely oblivious to what just happened in chapter 6. You would think that, as similar as the passages are, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, Jesus did this with, with the twelve to fifteen thousand, a few days ago or a few months ago, whatever it is." It says in those days, but they seem to completely forget about that. Now we should be a little bit, show them a little bit of grace because even though the text does say in those days, we don't know if in those days means literal days or if it means weeks or months or perhaps up to a year. Jesus' ministry was about three years. And he did so many miracles that John says in chapter 21. He says, now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So show a little bit of grace to the disciples. Even if it was a few months, there's probably plenty of other miracles that happened to where they may have been like, oh yeah, that was like 60 miracles ago. Like, I didn't remember that one. I guess I should have. And so there's so many going on. Um, But if it is just days, then it just shows their memory is wildly terrible. I mean, I don't have a great memory. Danielle likes to remind me of that because I tend to forget that I have a bad memory. And so like I constantly get reminded of that. Now these disciples, if it was just days and they they have a terrible memory. Okay. So either way, whether it was just days or whether it was months, the disciples don't look great. Okay. So if it, if it was days, then their memories are bad. If it was months, then there've been dozens likely of miracles that have happened in between. You would think that if Jesus says like, let's feed them, they'd be like, oh yeah, like you can do it. We know you can. You've shown us all these different miracles. You would think that they would be that quick to have faith that Jesus would be able to meet the needs that he brings up. But, but what do they say? They say, where can anyone get enough bread? And so Jesus sees the need of these people that they've come from a long distance. And he doesn't want to send them off because he knows they'll collapse on the way. They can't make it on their own. And so he meets their needs. He meets their physical need. And sometimes us as followers of Jesus, we, we can, we can major on all the this, this spiritual need. Like that's, that's what we need to meet first and foremost. And, and absolutely yes. And amen, like the spiritual need is our greatest need. However, we shouldn't overlook the physical needs, the physical suffering of those in our community, because ultimately if there's a human being suffering, they're made in the image of God. And so we care about that suffering because they are made in God's image. So Jesus addresses them physically, but he also addresses them spiritually. His compassion leads to action. And in the same way, that if we're going to be compassionate people, we should be people who are acting. That compassion doesn't just get to live in a compartment by itself, but it drives us to action. James in chapter 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? He says, if you you say you have compassion, but you're unwilling to step out and address the needs, then what good is your compassion? So Jesus, compassionate Jesus, addresses their physical needs, but he also addresses their spiritual needs. And so we see our second point where Jesus provides a meal. Look with me in verses four through seven. And the disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate, desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people so they served them to the crowd. They also had a few f- small fish. And after he had blessed them, he, s- he said these were to be served as well. Both instances, Mark 6 and Mark 8, Jesus is teaching a crowd. He's addressing their spiritual need. And then he recognizes their physical need. He addresses both. And in both instances, he provides bread. It's not like they went out and gathered some of the greenery in the area and said, let's dish out 5,000 salads. They are, he's each time giving them bread. Okay. And yes, bread is a common food at that time, but I think it's foreshadowing something more. I think it's foreshadowing the Lord's supper. We see Jesus saying in John six, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, we shouldn't overlook what's being foreshadowed here. Follow me. There's bread provided, and then he gives thanks. Then the bread is broken, it's entrusted to the disciples, it's given to the masses, and then everyone who eats is satisfied. There's a pattern in Mark 6, there's a pattern in Mark 8, and then we see it in the Lord's Supper that bread is provided, we give thanks. And those who partake are satisfied. Very similar to the words that we see in chapter 14 when Jesus enacts the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper being that act in which Christians are reminded that we are satisfied in Christ. And it's also foreshadowing what he would do on the cross. We use bread because Jesus himself said that this is my body, which is broken for you. And so when the bread is broken and dispersed, it reminds us that Jesus' body was broken, and his atoning sacrifice was dispersed to all his people. So there's a foreshadowing going on here when Jesus is feeding these people. He's not dishing out random food. He's intentionally using bread, which shows us not only is he addressing their physical needs, but he's addressing their eternal spiritual needs. So that point's a little shorter, and we'll jump now to our third point, which is really the clearer picture of what's happening in this passage. Look in verses eight, verse eight through 10. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So verse eight says that the people ate and were satisfied. Now, that word satisfied, the very same original word, is used earlier in the passage in verse 4, but the CSB doesn't quite encapsulate what's actually being said. So it translates that as feed. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see in verse 4, here in this desolate place to feed these people. Now, the New American Standard Bible encapsulates this. In his translation, it says his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? So we see encapsulating what's actually happening. It starts off, there's a lot of people. Where is there gonna, how can we get enough bread to satisfy these people? And then we see in verse eight, further down, they ate and were satisfied. There's a satisfaction taking place here, the problem that we see at the beginning of this passage is that there's a needy people. and They need to be satisfied. And the disciples who've been walking with Jesus, who have seen what he's been doing up close and personal, they say, how in the world can they be satisfied? It's impossible. Jesus takes care of it. I was going to say something else. I shouldn't. But anyways. Um, okay. So with that. Where are we this morning? It is so easy for us to constantly be looking for satisfaction in other places, constantly. We, we do it all the time. I do it all the time. We are looking at our work for satisfaction. We look at our hobbies. We look at our relationships. We look at our family, money, status. We always try to find this next thing. Remember in high school, I was like, man, I can't wait to get my driver's license. And I got my drivers, license. man, I can't wait to go to college. Go to college, ah, I can't wait to get a job. Can't wait to get married. Can't wait to have kids. Can't wait for those kids to get older and easier. Can't wait. (laughs) Can't wait for retirement. And there's always, like, the next thing, right? You're always looking towards the next thing to, when I get there, then I'll be satisfied. And the truth is, none of those things can satisfy. And they never quite fully satisfy because, simply, they, they just can't. Reminds us of... Um, when Jesus in John 4, when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well and he's trying to get some water and he tells her that whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. He and that Samaritan woman talk about several things, about her husbands, and, and she, he begins to tell her other things about who he is. But ultimately what we see here is Jesus saying, you want to be satisfied? You have to drink the water that I give you. You won't find it in your five husbands. You won't find it in the water that you're pulling out of this well. You won't find it in the location in which you worship. She's asking about, will they always worship there? And he says, if you want to be satisfied, you have to drink the water that I provide. And there's also something else that we should be picking up on in this passage. So in Mark 6, there are 12 baskets full, right? So he, hands out the five loaves. Then there's so much left over after feeding the arguably over 10,000 people that there's 12 baskets full of leftover bread. Now commentators point out he's feeding a Jewish crowd and there's 12 baskets full leftover. These aren't just arbitrary numbers. So the commentators will say that that 12 is referring back to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when you read the scriptures, you want to read it slowly. You want to pick up on some of the things that are there because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so no word is there frivolously. And in this passage, as he's talking to a Gentile group, a non-Jewish group, we see the word or the number seven brought up several times. So when we do read the Bible, we want to pay close attention to words or phrases that get repeated and this seven is brought up, seven loaves. Jesus took the seven loaves, and then there were seven baskets full. It'd be like my wife, Danielle, her birthday's coming up in July. It'd be like if we were driving and she said, oh, Target, there's a pair of shoes there that I really like. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, she says, oh, I need new shoes. I, I think I just need this new pair, and ah, it's no big deal. And then later on, she said, Target's having a sale on shoes. <laughs> would, I would hopefully pick up on some of the cues that are being laid, some of the breadcrumbs. Maybe, hopefully. But here in the passage, we see the Holy Spirit laying out some breadcrumbs, saying seven loaves. Jesus took the seven loaves. There were seven baskets full afterward. New American commentary says that the number 12 in the previous account obviously is relevant to Israel. The number seven here. May it symbolize fullness and completion and therefore the Gentiles. Jesus in Mark 6 is feeding the Jewish people, the Israelites. He teaches them and then he meets their physical need as promised in the Old Testament. He's fulfilling that. But what Jewish readers initially didn't realize is that this gospel, this Messiah who's coming to satisfy, to fill the needs of their people It doesn't stop with their people. It extends to Gentiles, to non-Jews. That's why we get to sit in this room and be reminded of the good news of the gospel because we who are not part of ethnic Israel have received this good news. And Jesus now talking to this Gentile people is teaching them, meeting their spiritual needs, and meeting their physical needs. And there's a fullness where the gospel Yes, was promised to the people of Israel, but it's completed. It reaches its fullness when others are grafted in as well. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This fullness that is extended to God's people when the psalmist is writing this, he's, he's writing this from an Israel perspective, a Jewish perspective. That fullness is now extended to non-Israelites. It's extended beyond ethnic Israel to Gentiles. And so now those who are far off can be brought near. We've already mentioned that theme a couple of weeks ago, but we see it again here. Verse 3, Jesus says that some have come a long distance. They've made a long travel. They've made... A, it's a, they came from a far place to be near to Jesus, and he says, "Look, they've come so far. If if I send them off without meeting their needs, they're not going to make it." And yes, he's referring to physical. We don't overlook that. But there's also some spiritual connotations there that we would be remiss to overlook. He cares for the people who are far off. He is, has a concern for them. He shows compassion on them. Let that in and of itself, let that be an encouragement to you. No matter where you are, whether you feel like you're near and intimate with the Lord, or whether you feel like you are far off, maybe because you've sinned this week, maybe because you can't seem to overcome some things that are going on in your life, fill in the blank. You know, you know what that thing is for you. Whatever that is, if, if that thing makes you feel like you are far from God, be encouraged that God has compassion for you. He cares for you. He has concern for you. And he doesn't want you to go alone. He says that they go, they, they come from a far place. If they go now, they're going to collapse on the way. Jesus knew that on their own they would die. That they wouldn't make it back. So he gave them exactly what they needed. The freedom that the Messiah brings to his people is extended to those who are far off, those who have come a long distance. And so if you're a non-Christian this morning, if this morning maybe you're a skeptic or you just wouldn't identify with those who claim to be followers of Jesus, that's okay. Thank you for being here. We want you here. We'd love to see you next week. This is a a good place for you to be. But non-Christian, do you feel far off? Do you feel like your past or perhaps your present, has you too far off from God. I would encourage you that Jesus cares for you. He has concern for you and he has compassion for you. And then Christian, who in your life have you maybe stopped praying for because you feel like they would have to travel too far of a distance to come to Jesus? Who is it in your life that you need to be praying for that the Lord would provide them with the bread of life? Here's the good news that whether it be the person that you're thinking of or whether it's you yourself, if you would come to Jesus, you will be accepted and you will be satisfied. John 6, 37 says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No matter what you have done, whether you have to travel a short distance, or whether you have to travel a long distance, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote from a book that I've been working through called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortlund. And the book has been a huge encouragement to my soul. And so this is a longer quote. Um, but, I, but I think it's worth hearing, um, obviously, or I wouldn't have put it in the sermon. But listen to it. Um, try hard not to check out with the longer quote here. but. Here's what he says. This is, if you have the book, Gentlemen and this is on pages 64 and 65. He says, Lord, I'm a great sinner. Say you, I will never cast out. Says Christ. But I'm an old sinner. Say you, I will never cast out. Says Christ. But I'm a hard hearted sinner. Say you, I will never cast out. Says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner. Say you, I will never cast out. Says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days. Say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against mercy, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. And then for those of us who are hearing that and thinking, Okay, but, dot, dot, dot. Dane Ortlund has this passage. He anticipated it. No, wait, we say cautiously, approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know it all, says Christ. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past. It's my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, says Christ. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it, says Jesus. It's too much to bear, not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you, Jesus. Jesus responds, then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Jesus responds, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Because of Jesus' compassion, the compassion that he shows us, we can live fully satisfied in him. The past, our present, whatever sin we're wrestling with, he will never cast you out because he has compassion on you. So do you believe that no matter what your past or your present is, do you believe The good news that if you come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. Is Christ where you go for satisfaction? Maybe for some, it's a hobby. Maybe it's golf. Maybe it's video games. Maybe it's a craft. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. Is Christ where you go for your satisfaction? And is there someone in your life that perhaps you've stopped praying for because of the distance they have to travel to get to Jesus? I encourage you, continue to put them before the Lord. Continue to beg the Lord to provide them with the bread of life. Jesus is the satisfaction that we've longed for. And in his compassion, he has brought that satisfaction near. We must only take and eat. We must only partake in the body of Christ. However, this compassion, this compassion that he's brought near, it's not applied to everyone applied to those who embrace the gospel Jesus is a compassionate God and in that book Gentle and Lowly there's a whole section that I'm not going to read but a whole section where he talks about how the compassion of God is there but because the compassion of God is there there's also the wrath of God these two things rise and fall together because Jesus has such great compassion on his people because he loves them so dearly he hates with a passion the things that destroy them, sin. And so this compassion that Jesus offers is applied only to those who receive his broken body, who say, yes, Lord, you have paid for my sin. You have provided the salvation that I need. Those who embrace that will receive satisfaction. Embrace Christ today. Don't rely on yourself. Look to the one who has come near. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are grateful that you provide salvation. We're grateful that you have sent your son. pay the price for our sin, for his body to be broken, so that we may partake in the body of Christ and therefore receive his righteousness. We thank you that you have reminded us of these things. We pray that where I was not clear, that Holy Spirit, you would provide clarity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.